You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Well, 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 welcome back to another episode. I know you've been missing me. I've been missing you, you one listener. I am really thrilled to have someone that I like to take total and full responsibility and credit for uh, Jeff Crowley's ministry and career. Jeff was an intern of mine probably almost 20 years ago, and he was such a great intern that we just stayed in touch for years after. And I really, really appreciated how normal Jeff was because y'all know that there are pastors who are not normal. You know that, right? I know, I know you know that. And Jeff is just a normal guy. He had long hair, he played the guitar, you know, he was like 19 years old. And like almost 20 years later, Jeff still has long hair, a little bit of gray, looks like Jesus actually, has the beard. Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, I I have, memories of being your intern i have another there's another guy i work with in our conference who's also one of your interns and and we often talk about how there there should be a t-shirt or something like <laughs> yeah the kumar dixit's interns yeah we survived kumar dixit yeah there you go something so like jeff that. you are a, a pastor um, of a local church and what I, what i've always respected about you is your commitment and faithfulness to scripture so that you also teach as an adjunct professor um, at a local university here in town. But I do want to tell you this. Back in 1992, I went to university and was studying theology. And I, I'd grown up a Christian, you know, my, my whole life and thought I kind of knew the Bible. But I took um, Jesus and the Gospels as my first class. Um, Pastor George Gaynor was a very young chaplain at the university, and he would he taught Jesus and the Gospels. And it was during that semester that I read the four Gospels four times through. I was obsessed with it as I started learning about you know, you know the the historical critical you know aspect of the of the Gospels and the audiences and and some of the nuances and and I really kind of had a real my first real conversion experience as a young person reading the Gospels. And let's just do a basic fundamental understanding of how to read the Gospels for dummies. One of the things I want to ask you first before we even get started is um, not when you're studying for your sermons, but just for your own personal devotional, what Bible version do you use? Um, I I go back and forth uh, between uh, a few of them uh, for my personal devotion. I've got it right here with me. I'll show you. Um, I use the New Revised Standard Version. Okay. Kind of, um, kind of the standard in the scholarly world. Um, it was translated by a uh, an ecumenical team, so you have Jews and Christians, Jews who helped work on the the Old Testament. Obviously, we're working with Hebrew, uh, a language that they're very familiar with, and then just. Uh, a, a team of scholars from different faith traditions, different Christian denominations coming together to work on this translation to produce the best translation possible. And that that's not why I use it. I use it because it's it's good and, and readable English, mm-hmm. uh, one that I can understand well enough, one that, that I think um, retains a certain level of 
uh, there's there's certain words you come across in the Bible that don't have a simple meaning. And instead of trying to simplify those, it still lets you know, hey, this, this is kind of a complicated thing you need to look into more. Uh, so I appreciate that about it. Um, but then I also use the NIV, which I've also got next to me. I use that for a lot of um, uh, reading. I use that for, for teaching and preaching, but it makes its way into my personal life. So I, I, I tend to use the NIV and the NRSV. Are you one of those NIV junkies that are unhappy with kind of the, the, the fact that they made some of the translations, you know, the um, controversy with some of the pronouns in, in the um, translation? I am a junkie, but I'm not against those things because... Um, in fact, I look for those things in, in a Bible translation. Um, I think that there are, not I think, I, I know uh, that there are many times in the original language, particularly in Greek, where it uses a word that, that very literally means brothers. But if, if we're going to talk about language, literally, there's lots of problems we run into because language also has inferred uh, meanings and, and things that aren't communicated solely through what the, a word literally means. And so there's times that the New Testament says brothers but what it's really insisting is brothers and sisters, everybody we're talking about humanity. And, and the same thing when you get in, in, into Hebrew, you have words that mean humanity yeah. that should be translated as humankind rather than man. And so I, I specifically gravitate towards those Bible translations. That's why I use the NRSV is because it is uh, gender inclusive. It talks about humankind and not about mm -hmm. man. I use the NIV because it talks about humankind, not about man. Interesting. We should do a whole other podcast about that. We should. It's it's a can of worms, man. Very cool. Well, I I use the NLT. Will you look down at me? I look. I no, the, because it's also gender inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> I I use the NLT for my for my personal Bible study, and then I use the NRSV when I'm working on sermons, and and the NIV, you know, as as well. So yeah, those three are where I tend to stay as well. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the first three are what we call the synoptic gospels. Tell us just, you know, as you've been teaching, you know, Jesus and the gospels, what are kind of some of the interesting insights that you've kind of discovered about these gospels? Interesting insights, I would say, and it's something that I already knew when, when I started teaching it, but really, really kind of came alive for me when I was spending more time with them because I was teaching it and, and something I've seen come alive for my students. And a very surprising fact about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they are not trying to tell the same story. They're all talking about Jesus. They're all, uh, the three synoptics specifically are repeating several stories that, that the other two uh, have as well, but they're not trying to tell the same story. They're not trying to make the same point that, that there are very intentional differences between the, the three synoptics and then John kind of off in its own category. And, and it's interesting to me because in, in, in past years or, or things that I've, I've seen, things that I've been exposed to is that's often talked about in, as a bug in terms of, you know, the gospels don't agree with each other. So how can they be reliable and, and, and all that sort of thing. But, but for me, that really clears up when you look back at it and you say that they're really not trying to tell you the same thing. They're not, really, they're not trying to convey the same story. They're using uh, the story of, of Jesus and, and transmitting faithfully the story of Jesus, but doing so in ways that make sense for their own traditions. Um, and so there's a lot of differences between the Gospels and, and a lot of times they're not resolved, but, but there's meaning made out of them 
mm-hmm. because of, of the stories that, that they are trying to tell. One, one of the things that I do with my class in the, in the very first uh, lecture, I put up a, a, a news headline uh, about an event and, and I, I usually pull it from contemporary things. And it'll say something like, you know, gas prices are, are falling. You know, that's the news. That's what it is. And then I'll put up a headline from a different source that'll say something like gas prices are falling after they skyrocketed to, you know, this other sort of thing saying, so we're talking about the same thing, right? Mm, we're talking mm-hmm. about the same event, but what we're doing is we're looking at it through different lenses. We're seeing different stories through the same event and the gospels are really written in much the same way. So could you agree that basically each one of the gospel writers had their own purpose for what they were writing that gospel for? So they weren't just writing it for historical artifacts. They were trying to influence their readers on what they were writing. Yeah, and, and I, I think I would hesitate to call it an agenda. And, and I do think that for many of them, they were trying to document historic fact. Luke, Luke explicitly says, I'm, I'm here to give you a, a reasonable account of things that have happened, saying he consulted with eyewitnesses and that sort of thing. But the gospel writers themselves are part of communities, and communities have worldviews, communities have opinions, communities have stories that are rooted in history. And in many ways, you see that coming out through, through the different gospels. So you have Matthew and Luke, who are both synoptic gospels, both contain a lot of the same material as one another. But Matthew is very clearly writing for Israel, for the Jewish people, a Jew himself, and, and sees things through that lens. And Luke is, is a Gentile, been debate whether, debated whether or not he was a Gentile convert to Judaism, but coming from a Gentile background, he sees things differently than Matthew does. And in many ways, they tell the same stories, but their history and their group affect the way that they come out. So let's let's start with Matthew then. What What is Matthew? His audience is the Jewish people. What is he trying to articulate to convince them or inform them about Jesus? Matthew's goal with his gospel is to very clearly and in no uncertain terms say that Jesus is the hope and the culmination of Israel. And and he does this in in so many different ways throughout his gospel. His gospel starts, the very first words are Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So connecting Jesus with with Israel's two greatest figures, their greatest king and their their founding father. And uh, the way that Matthew goes about his gospel is to just in so many places make this thing evident. Jesus is the, the culmination of Israel. He has this theme about Jesus reliving Israel's story. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel that talks about Jesus fleeing to Egypt after he's born in Bethlehem and Herod, King Herod is, is trying to kill all the baby boys born because he's trying to find this one that the wise men have come and told him is a king, a, a threat yeah. to his rule. And so Matthew tells the story of Jesus leaving Egypt. And then you go off into another story for a little bit. And the very next time we see Jesus, he's left Egypt and now he's being baptized. He's passing through the water. Israel left Egypt, got to the Red Sea, had to pass through the water. After Jesus passes through the water, after he's baptized, he immediately goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Israel leaves the Red Sea, goes and wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, not 40 days. And then when Jesus is done with his wilderness experience, 
he goes and gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is essentially his re-giving of the law of Moses. So Israel leaves Egypt, passes through the water of the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years, receives the law from a mountain, Mount Sinai. So, so Matthew is really trying to make the point. Jesus is reliving Israel's experience as the culmination of, of everything that God had called Israel to be. Yeah, that's good. And and I, I don't think, you know, as modern readers, we really take a real good understanding that Matthew just didn't sit down and just start writing. Like any writer, he's but, he's plotting how he's going to put his book together, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he, he has a very specific purpose for, for what he's trying to do. And, and that affects the ways that, that he he tells the story and, and details that, that he puts in, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says this was a sermon on a mount, right? Because mm-hmm. he's trying to make the point that this is the law being re-given. So the first time it's given, it's given on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Now Jesus is doing it again. But you get to Luke and you have the exact same sermon, but Luke doesn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's one of the things where, where, you know, we talked about it previously. This has been looked at as a bug. Well, it's, it's unreliable because Matthew says it's the Sermon on the Mount. Luke says it's the Sermon on the Plain. Was it a Sermon on a Mount or a Sermon on a Plain? Matthew says it's on a mountain because it's the re-giving of the law. Luke, a Gentile, looks at the great teachers of the Gentile tradition. You think of people like Plato, Aristotle. And what they did is they would gather their students together in a flat place where they could be heard. And so Luke presents the same sermon showing Jesus as this great and, and wise teacher. And so, so this is a feature rather than a bug that it, it shows two different windows, two different views into the same thing. That's good. So let, let's, so we got, you know, 28 chapters of Matthew. Yeah. Let's talk about kind of the last three chapters, you know, the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of, of Jesus. How, yeah. how does he portray that story for Jewish people? One, one of the interesting things about the story of, of the crucifixion is that every single gospel portrays it differently. Uh, every, every, every single gospel has a different commentary on, on the crucifixion and, and the way it kind of happens. And so it, it's, it's been an interesting thing with, uh, with Christian churches. They'll talk about it, like the seven words from the cross, that sort of thing. Seven things Jesus says mm-hmm. from the cross. But you don't get seven things in each individual gospel, right? Mm-hmm. You get seven things yeah. by reading across the gospels and, and each of their their various accounts of, of the crucifixion. Matthew's particular portrayal of the crucifixion is that it brings up the not only the suffering of Jesus, but compares things that Jesus said earlier that are, that, that are very buzzwordy to, to a Jewish audience. And so you have the chief priests, teachers of the law, uh, mocking him, saying he is the, the, the king of Israel, that, um, you know, saying, I'm the son of God, the same thing like that, uh, challenging this notion that Jesus is uh, Israel, Israel's story being relived. And, and Matthew really portrays a, a very bleak picture of the cross. He really focuses in on the, the suffering of mm-hmm. Jesus. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel that portrays Jesus on the cross, uh, in, in Aramaic, crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Um, very, very different than, than the other three. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast. So let's move quickly through um, Mark and Luke. Who is the audience for Mark and, and what is kind of the hidden agenda or 
theme that 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 writer is trying to get to that audience? Uh, Mark is the is the gospel of quick action. Like you jump right into the story and it it moves quickly. Mark Mark really moves like somebody trying to tell a story, mm-hmm. uh, somebody trying to keep your attention hooked, somebody trying to keep you hanging on every word of what's coming next and, and, and that sort of thing. Mark is often talked about as the gospel of the, the son of man. This, this is how Jesus commonly refers to himself in the gospel of Mark. But Mark's biggest thing is parables. Jesus tells parable after parable after parable after parable in, in Mark. And Mark is, is unique in, in my community that, that reads the gospels. Uh, Mark is very unique for a thing called sandwich stories where Mark will have Jesus start telling a story. Jesus won't finish that story. He'll launch into a story in the middle of it, and then he'll come back and finish the story that he started in the Mm. beginning. It's called, the technical term is intercalation, but uh, we refer to it as sandwich stories. And that's really one of the literary features of of Mark. When I'm working with somebody who's new to the Bible or new new to the Christian faith, I generally recommend that they read the book of Mark first, Yeah, partly because it's only 16 chapters, so it's short. Uh, and then secondly, because it's action packed. And, and I say circle how many times the word go and immediately you see throughout, you know, that that book. So it's very action packed. It's showing kind of how motivated Jesus was in his ministry to, to make a difference with the short time that he had there. Um, what what is he trying to accomplish? Like, what's that message that he's trying to let his audience know? I, I think, and, and I think you just alluded to it in, in what you said, is I, I think what Mark is trying to do is to take all of these things that Jesus did between miracles and teachings and saying, you know, this, this Jesus is the Messiah and, and here's the proof for it. That's why there's so many stories. That's why it's quick action, because he's he's trying to fit in as much as he can that this is the evidence of, of, of who Jesus was to the point that even the resurrection story in Mark is incredibly abbreviated. You don't, you don't have the same interactions of the resurrection that, as you do in Matthew and Luke and, and in John. Mark's is just quick and dirty. He, he's arisen and, and that's it. Jesus even tells people in, in, in Mark, don't tell people yet, called the, the uh, Markan secret. That Jesus almost tries to keep his resurrection a secret, but it's it's focused on that quick action to to prove that this this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus did, this this is why we should believe him. Mm, good. Um, then we get to Luke, Doctor Luke, and he is, I think, the only writer who didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, we could say the same thing with Mark because there's just kind of some beliefs that he may have been that little naked boy that ran across, right. you know, from yeah. Jesus. But Luke is, is is somebody who's writing a kind of a historical narrative, right? Right. Yeah. And and very much says so. He says he's consulted eyewitnesses and that sort of thing. Luke is actually my favorite gospel. It, it didn't used to be, but, but I've spent uh, the past few years really, really digging uh, through Luke. Uh, my, my church has a Wednesday night Bible study and for a year and a half we went through Luke and so I was writing study guides every week just digging through Luke. I'm, I'm finishing the sermon series this this weekend on, on Luke as well. We often talk about Luke as the detailed gospel, uh, the historical narrative gospel and that sort of thing, but, but what Luke has that, that the other gospels don't is what I would argue are Jesus's two most well-remembered stories or parables. You have the 
the parable of the Good Samaritan, one that is very well known even outside of Christian circles, and then of the prodigal son, um, oh another one that's very well known outside of, of, of Christian circles. And those two parables are, are part of what Luke has that, that is unique to Luke. It's called the travel narrative, where Jesus leaves Galilee, which is north of, of Jerusalem, and travels to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to uh, his, his death and, and his resurrection. But the way that Luke tells the story, it takes 10 chapters for Jesus to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he takes anything but a direct path. Uh, he's, he's kind of winding around all over the place. But, but there is a theme to Luke's travel narrative, and that is the gospel for the outcasts. So mm-hmm. people that, that we would not think that we would want as part of the community, people that we don't think would be, or not we, but, but the original audience that we would think would be worthy of being in the community. That's who Jesus goes to during the travel narrative. That's who Jesus praises during the travel narrative. That's why those two stories are part of the travel narrative because uh, Samaritans were a very hated group of people. And Jesus has asked this question, well, who's my neighbor? So he tells a story about a priest, a Levite, a lawyer who walks, walk by this, this, this guy who's been beaten and left for dead and don't do anything for him. But the one who stops to help him is a Samaritan part of this hated group. And then Jesus finishes by saying, so who's actually the neighbor forcing mm-hmm. them to say, and it's interesting in the story, the guy who responds to Jesus doesn't say the Samaritan he can't bring himself to say it. He says the one who helped him. And then the prodigal son, uh, what we don't often catch in the parable of the prodigal son is he that should have been the sons. When, when he asks for his inheritance, essentially telling his father, I wish you were dead. There's a provision in Moses's law to say that a child, if they show that level of hostility towards their parents can actually be killed. And so that the father lets him go with his money is an act of grace. And then when the son returns home and it says the father runs to him, uh, I had a professor in seminary is from Mosul in Iraq. So where, where Nineveh was the biblical city of Nineveh, he was telling us the story of the prodigal son. And he said, in this culture, he said, when I was growing up and in, in, in as far back as, as Jesus's ministry, it brings shame upon an older person to run. That is a shameful act, something that you don't do. And in a culture that is built on an honor and shame system for an old man to run and bring shame upon himself is, is something that, that you don't do because now you have to gain your honor back somehow. So it yeah. tells the story of a father with a son who wished he was dead, who is now willing to bring shame on himself to bring his son back into his family, back into his home. So it, it's the beauty of the gospel of Luke. I love the gospel of Luke in the way it just illustrates those stories that those who we think should be far off have a seat at Jesus's table. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I never thought of, of that. It's kind of, in many ways, the social justice gospel, right? Um, Very much so. You have you have Jesus standing up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 to begin his public ministry, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to to preach good news to, to the poor, to the oppressed, to proclaim yeah. liberty to the captives, restoring the sight to the blind. Uh, great banquet, uh, a man inviting all his friends and honored guests to a banquet, but none of them can come. And so he says, go invite anybody off the street, the people who don't wouldn't have the honor of sitting at my table and inviting them to my table. And that that's the beauty of the gospel of Luke is you see that over and over and over and over. Yeah. And, and I love that story because in particular, I remember reading, you know, the, the original Greek uh, there is not just go and grab anybody. There's an intense forcefulness yeah. of, 
of demanding, like you must, there, there's a desperation to go get anybody and bring them to the table, you know, yeah. and the I command think, to do so rather not, this would be a nice thing, but that, no, that, that's right. I command you to do this. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it, it shows us kind of just God's desperate uh, love for humanity to be like, go get anybody here to eat at this table because I want to be able to, to feed them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Luke, who's his audience? Luke's audience is a particular guy, one guy. It's, it's a, a letter written to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And there is some, there's been some speculation as to whether or not Theophilus was an individual. Uh, it's a Greek name. So assuming he's a, a Gentile, but Theophilus also literally means lover of God. It's been speculated as to whether this was a symbolic character. If you are somebody who, who loves God, here's, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. It's a specific individual because Theophilus was a pretty common name uh, in, in the first century world. Or if it's Theophilus is kind of representative of a community, of, of a specific mm. community. Uh, so there's been some speculation on that. But Luke makes very clear that uh, I'm writing this to you, whether it's an individual, whether it's a community, whether it's representative of something else. He has one particular person in mind. You're listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. So those are the first three Gospels, but they are not written uh, as far as each of them aren't written in order as far as no. Matthew was the first one to write it, and then came Mark, and then came Luke, right? So explain right. to us who the first writer was of, of all of this. So it's it's largely and commonly thought that Mark is the Gospel that came first. And, and that, that really does kind of make sense in, in the way that Mark's written. It's very quick. It's got a lot of... Um, of action, a lot of stories, but also you have Matthew and Luke who contain a lot of the same material, but are very different from one another. But 93% of the gospel of Mark can be found in both Matthew and Luke when you, when you combine Matthew and Luke together. So it's largely thought that, that Mark came first and was one of the sources that Matthew and Luke used as they wrote their gospels. So those are what we call the synoptic gospels. Then we finally get to the fourth gospel, which is John, which is my favorite gospel. Yeah. Um, and part of it is because I took an entire course from Kendra Holoviak just on the book okay. of John. So I got like really like geeked out on it, you know, 21 chapters. And it's very, very unlike the other gospels as far as not just structure, but as far as content. So tell us about yeah. that. So the, the synoptic gospels, synoptic literally comes from the word synopsis, which means here's the story that, that we're telling you. Uh, John isn't concerned about that at all. In, in fact, he makes the caveat at the end of his gospels that if I, I told you all the things Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to, to, to tell you all those things. So he straight up tells you, I'm not trying to tell you everything. He has a very specific purpose in, in, in showing who Jesus is in his gospel. And, and John starts with arguably the most beautiful start of, of any of the Gospels, arguably the whole Bible itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him. There was nothing made that was made that didn't come through him. Trying to show that Jesus is the pre-existent God, that, that he's, he's more than just some guy who the title Messiah was bestowed upon, that he actually is himself the God of Israel. And then the way he writes his gospel is he backs that up with what he calls seven signs. And uh, John does not have the word miracle in his gospel. 
it's in Matthew, all over Mark, it's in Luke, but John does not use the word miracle. He uses the word sign because these are signs showing you that, that Jesus is Israel's true God here in the flesh in, in front of us. He had that, that beautiful uh, verse, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, Eugene Peterson's message says the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, came into our presence. And, and that that's what John is trying to show with his gospel. I think also another th- theme of John is, is the, is a the theme of love. Yeah. You, you, it's, it's, you know, mentioned, you know, innumerable times. Uh, talk about, about that. Well, you have the most famous text in the whole Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his, his only son going back to that theme that this is Israel's true God who's doing this. But one, one of the more illuminating stories is in uh, the very end of, of John's gospel. And uh, it's a story that, in my opinion, when we read John, do- doesn't get the due that, that it's deserved because John is the only gospel that gives us a glimpse into Jesus's relationship with Peter after Peter has, has betrayed him um, the, the way that Jesus predicted that, that he would. And, and John gives us a very specific literary marker that l- lets us see that. There, there is a word that is a Greek word that is used twice in the entire New Testament. We see it the first time during Jesus's trial when it says that they were outside and then the, the Greek word refers to a fire made from coals. There, that someone lit a fire made from coals in order to light the space and warm it and that sort of thing. That's the first time we see it. The second time we see that word in the New Testament is also in John a few chapters later after Jesus has risen and John and Peter have gone out fishing and Jesus miraculously appears to them and invites them into the shore where he has a meal prepared for them. And it says that he has prepared this meal over a fire of coals. Mm-hmm. So two, two times this word is used in the new Testament. And John is trying to tell you these stories go together. They're linked. The first time there's a fire of coals, Peter denies Jesus three times. The second time there's a fire of coals, um, Jesus and Peter have this conversation and Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you, you know I love you. And Jesus tells him, well, feed my lambs. And then he asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you, you know that I love you. And he says, well, feed my sheep. So it's a progression from lambs to sheep. And then a third time, um, uh, Jesus asks him, you know, Peter, do you love me? And this really breaks Peter's heart. Why are you asking me so much if, if, if I love you? Three times Jesus asks him for, for three times that Peter betrayed him. But the Greek words there for love are, are different. Uh, Greek has several different words for love, or in English we have one word, but Peter asks Jesus, he uses this word agape for love. Do you love me? And when Peter responds, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter does not use agape. Peter uses the word phileo. So if you've ever been to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it, it, it comes from that. It's, it's kind of a, a fraternal sort of um, Lord, sort of love. And so that's why it keeps, keeps escalating, or Jesus says, do you agape, love me. And Peter says, no, I, I, I phileo love you. And so Jesus asks again. And so it's this back and forth. And so it really portrays love, um, not, not as this ideal to strive for, which I think we think of love a lot of times as this, this big ideal, but as something concrete. Jesus mm-hmm. gives Peter something concrete to do. It, that love looks like this, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then Jesus ends the conversation by talking about the, the future that, that Peter will have where he will um, eventually himself be crucified as Jesus was, which 
doesn't sound like good news, but for somebody who's just denied Jesus, Jesus affirms, in the end, you will be as ultimately faithful as you can be. But this is what love looks like. Love looks like following me mm-hmm. where I ask you to go. And so love is a very concrete thing, John, not, not some ideal to be strived for. Wow, I love that. You're listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. All right, so let's let's talk about the fact that you know you you mentioned in John twenty one where where the writer said if I were to have recorded everything that Jesus actually said and did there wouldn't be enough books in the world right uh, to record what he did and then I'm kind of like bruh well then why did you all use like the same like fifty stories <laughs> you know yeah. You know, like why, 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 why did you guys do that? Except for John, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And and there, there is some belief that, um, you know, maybe that John didn't kind of use the same stuff because he was just so far removed from them physically, and he wrote the book decades later. Uh, yep. What do you, what is your, what is your thought? Yeah, that's very, very possible. I think that that there's some attempts to kind of poke holes in the credibility of them to say. You know, I mentioned earlier, Matthew and Luke tell about the same sermon, but they include different details. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Well, which is it? But there's enough crossover material that that you can kind of see that they're working with something similar. And, And if you go with the Mark and priority and you think Mark wrote his gospel anywhere from you know, the year 50 to the year 63, something like that, that it, that it is the earliest of the Gospels, you know, somebody can come along and say, well, that's 30 years after Jesus died. So you have 30 years of yeah. oral tradition, 30 years of, of stories of that sort of thing. And, um, you know, the, the follow-up question to that is always, well, 30 years have gone by and people are telling stories for 30 years. Things things change in stories, right? Mm-hmm. Things, things are our details are changed, uh, things that happen are changed. So how can we rely on the, the trustworthiness of, of this thing when they use the same stories, but they're differing in, in so many different ways? Um, but to compare with that, I think the oldest biography we have of Alexander the Great happens like 800 years after his death or, or something like that. And so okay. when, when you're working with historical sources, there, there's, there's always a belief that there's some oral tradition and yeah, there is some subject to, to change in that sort of thing. I, I actually think it's a testament to the reliability of the Gospels that you do have so much crossover. You do have so many similar stories between uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then even John has a few stories that, that are, are in the synoptics. John, John's doing his own thing, for sure. But there's still stories that are in John that are also in the, the synoptics. That says something about the reliability of them, that even with all this oral tradition, these are still the stories that are, are told of, of Jesus. These are the ones that stuck around. These are the ones that are enduring. The fact that they are so similar is, is more of a feature, as I said earlier, than a bug. So let me, let me push on that because I feel like, I mean, I think you said 93% of Matthew can be found in, in Mark. 93% of Mark is found in Matthew and Luke. Right, because Mark was the first writer. Um, of, of that. So they borrowed heavily, you know, from that um, is what is what we assume. But there there's so many contradictions that appear in even these synoptic gospels. And I'm like, if they're like borrowing from the guy, like, why are they like not getting their their facts correct? You know, so just just as an example, you know, the woman that anoints Jesus in the in the Bible, 
Some say she anointed his head. Mm-hmm. Others say that he she anointed his feet. Yeah. Some say that um, it was Mary. Others say it was a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Some say that it, it happened in Bethany, Lazarus's you know house. Others say that it possibly could have been um, elsewhere. Some say she shed no tears. Others say she shed tears, right? Like this is the same story. So, th- so there's so many contradictions in just what we have in one story, just as an il- illustration. Doesn't that make you wonder if they can't even get one story right that I'm just pointing out as an example, how do we know that the rest of it, it's truth worthy? I, I think there's a I think there's a divide between East and West here that often happens. That in, in the West we are a very fact-based culture that mm. we often want to know what happened more than we want to know what it means. And and, mm. and to you, you need no further proof of that than to just look at our news. Even the word headline itself, a headline does not explain what the thing that happened actually means all it tells you is what happened mm-hmm. and that's the way that we gather information that's the way that that we work with things and that is a very uniquely western thing but the gospels and the bible were not written in the western world their original audience was not the western world so they're not written to the western world they're written to the eastern world which is concerned about what happened yeah we're not saying that they're not but they often find themselves more concerned with what does it mean? Mm. And so you have the, this skeleton outline of these, these things that Jesus did and said, or the things that happened to them. There's different um, uh, aspects. So you mentioned the woman who anoints Jesus. Was it his head? Was it his feet? Who was she? That sort of thing that takes on different meanings. If, if you anoint his head with oil, uh, which is, I think what Matthew says happens, this is a very clear reference back to the Old Testament where prophets have their heads anointed with oil to signify their prophetic calling by God, where kings, David, has his head anointed by oil to signify that, that they are kings. And so it makes a lot of sense for Matthew to say his head is, is anointed because he's saying he's Israel's greatest prophet, he's Israel's greatest king. Different cultures do things differently. So, so Luke says she anointed his feet, which, which has a different meaning and a different connotation. But the fact remains, you have the skeleton outline of here's what happened. And mm-hmm. what they're doing is grappling with, well, what's the meaning of it? And that's where you get things that change. So another example of that is you have the same stories that show up in different places. So you have arguments about who is the greatest, then Matthew show up in, in certain places. And then Luke includes it in the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Matthew doesn't. And, and John, who talks, talks about the Last Supper the most, certainly doesn't. And so you're kind of like, well, did it happen during the Last Supper or did it not? And, and I don't think they're as concerned about that as much as they're concerned about what it means. Mm. You're listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. So I'm reading the Bible through every day. Today is day 226. I'm in Chronicles right now. Jeff, I have three degrees that are related to theology and religion. I've read the Bible many, many, many times through. And as a seasoned Bible reader, I still find it very, very boring at times. Parts of it, very boring, always, (laughs) you know. There's part of me that feels dull 
you know, it's like, oh, yeah, here's the story of Jesus getting his head anointed. Yep, I remember this when I was five years old. Here we go again, you know. And so, so what, how, do, how do you help seasoned Christians to feel that freshness again? Like, when I read the Gospels, I don't feel like that 18-year-old Kumar who was so pumped that I had to read it four times in a row. Like, I read it, and I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah I, know, I know i know yeah, yeah, yeah right so 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 what what do you say to the person who's kind of just like i don't know if there's anything else i can get out of this one of the most helpful things that, that i have found not just with the gospels but but with other parts of the bible is to find something to read alongside the bible that helps explain what's actually happening um, in the story, what what are the specific things that when, and, and what do they mean? So what I what I'm using, I'm reading through the Gospel of Matthew right now for for myself, and I have this book um, by N.T. Wright. It's just a tiny little commentary where he goes through each kind of uh, story in Matthew and says a little bit about you know this is what was going on, this is what it meant. Um, so for instance, the story of Jesus's birth, and you know the story about the wise men, you know the story about Herod killing the babies because he's looking for Jesus, all this other sort of thing. But, but what he really brings out is the fact that here's three foreigners who come to a guy who has stylized himself as the king of Israel, right? <laughs> Roman backing and all that sort of thing, and says the king of the Jews has been born and we want to see him. And suddenly the story makes a lot more sense. Why does Herod go killing everybody? Because there's somebody who might threaten his rule. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it's something like that, that, that brings the story um, alive a little bit. And so when you get glimpses into that sort of thing, why is the text arranged the way that it's arranged? It, it comes to, to life for you when you realize what are the socio-political structures of the day that when Jesus says something like, I am a king with a kingdom, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal in a world where the Romans would kill anybody who claimed to have a rival kingdom to theirs, who claimed mm -hmm. to have authority that Caesar didn't have, all of a sudden there's a lot more um, emphasis in the fact that Jesus says, I have a kingdom, because he's basically saying, I have a kingdom that threatens and, and challenges Rome. Yeah. So those things become um, a, a bigger deal. Uh, the second answer to that question is kind, kind of illustrated with a story. I, I went to a professional meeting last week, last week and you did your time in those. You know how those go. Uh, it was eight hours long from nine to five with very, very few breaks uh, in between. And it was about a subject that I very much believe in, that I very much support, but that in my professional capacity had nothing to do with me because I, yeah. I don't work with it. And so for eight hours, I found myself just kind of leaning back in my chair and wishing the day would go faster, wishing it would go over faster, even though I believed in it, even though I, I, I support it and all that other sort of thing, it had nothing to do with me. Yeah. And, and I often think that that's the way we approach the Bible as well. So you, you read that story about the woman who anointed Jesus and the first thought is that it has nothing to do with me, right? Uh, you know, Jesus isn't here in front of me. I can't anoint him, all that other sort of thing. But, but when you, you catch the significance of, of what that action actually meant, so take Matthew's retelling of it, for instance, that Jesus is prophet, Jesus is king. What does it mean, first of all, in the world that Jesus lived in, where there was a Caesar who claims to be a God, what does it mean that you have Jesus coming saying, I am the son of God and I am king? That's a direct threat to Caesar and to Caesar's kingdom. 
what do you do in a world where you and I live, where we have presidents, where we have elections, where in recent years we've had uh, debated outcomes of elections and that sort of thing? What does it mean for Jesus to be king in that mm. situation where we talk about executive authority and we talk about who's in charge and what is the best way to govern? What is the best way to rule? Then you have Jesus as king that says maybe Jesus's kingship has something to do with that is you find those things and what they mean. And usually when you do that, they're very apl applicable to what we experience, to who we are as people, to the things that happen in our world. Yeah, that, that, that's really, really helpful. Um, I'm going to ask you a kind of a, not a controversial question, but kind of a little, uh, I need a sound effect where it's like, bum, bum, bum. Evangelical Christianity in particular kind of poo-poos the non-canonical gospels. Yeah. Sometimes we may like stumble onto it if we have a Catholic Bible, we're like, oh, what is this? You know, the Apocrypha, you know, but there are other writers that give us a different perspective on Jesus. Peter, uh, Thomas, Mary, et cetera. That's yeah, right. you know, Secret yeah. Gospel of, of Mark, the Apocrypha of John, Apocalypse of James. Uh, gospel of Philip, you know, you, you have all of these different uh, gospel of Mary, there's a gospel of Ju Judas, you know, yeah. so, so they're, they're out there and they, they may not have gotten voted in by the church committee, you know, <laughs> yes. Does that help you have a kind of a wider understanding of who Jesus is? I think that the the apocryphal gospels as you call them they i think you have to look at them the same way with the same interpretive lens that you look at the four canonical gospels through and that is matthew has a point matthew is trying to make mark has a point mark is trying to make luke has a point luke is trying to make john has a point john is trying to make these other gospels have points that they're trying to make and it's usually in trying to discover what that point is that you realize why they are non-canonical for instance, the Gospel of Thomas is, is one of the more popular and, and one of the more reputable ones. It, it's well documented. It, it's from, you know, a, a very similar time period and that sort of thing. But you read through the Gospel of Thomas and you, you find that it it is defending a very old diversion from the Christian faith called Gnosticism that, that brought some other ideas uh, into Christianity that, that were, you know, not not original to the faith. And when you see that that's why it's trying to do that, and it makes sense. Well, that's, that's why the Council of Nicaea said, yeah, not this one, because that's the point that it was trying to make. And in my opinion, when you read it through those interpretive lenses, you discover that's why they're not canonical. Do you think it's part of it also is just because um, we don't want to see certain acts of Jesus that seem outside of the realm like you know him doing magic tricks with doves you know um. yeah sure and you know that that could be possible you know you ask why that's a story that's unique to to that particular uh, that, that's the gospel of thomas isn't it is mm -hmm. yeah you know that's unique to that that gospel so we say eh, it doesn't work but well this, the synoptic gospels have their own unique stories that we say uh those are authoritative in my opinion from what i've read and i haven't read them all so so it's a limited opinion there is not as much crossover in the stories between mm. the canonical gospels and uh, and the synoptics and even john john contains a little bit of what the, the synoptics contain as well that there's 
there's not as much crossover of material. And so you have those unique stories, but you have a ton of unique stories to the point that you question why so much uniqueness and why not the same narrative that we see elsewhere. So if, you, if you're watching um, this podcast on YouTube, you'll, you'll see that Jeff is not sitting in front of a green screen. That is actually his library behind him. You know, I know that you're not just a book nerd. I will ask you, what are you reading or Netflix binging that's unrelated to the Gospels? My wife and I have started this routine and, and I kind of built it into my own routine where we used to watch a ton of just TV at night when the kids went to bed. We'd watch Netflix, we'd watch all the shows, Stranger Things, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Um, but we, we kind of got to the point, and, and I always hated the idea of binging, and, and we always did, and, and she did too. So we kind of got to this point where we were like, let's read books. Like, let's read in, instead of, of, of watching TV. And so I've always had this practice that I wake up early in the morning before the kids get up, and that's when I read theology. That's when I read the, the nonfiction. So that's when I read about ethics. So I recently just read my first Stephen King book. Oh. Uh, I read Firestarter which uh, in, in, my, in my experience of the Stephen King people, that one doesn't get much love. You talk about the big ones. You talk about Carrie or The Shining or It or Pet Cemetery. You know, 112263, they made into a miniseries on, on Hulu. But Firestarter was fantastic. Just a beautiful and, and, and well-written story that, that also had some Stranger Things vibes. So it, it, okay. it, it satiated that, that part of the, of the wanting to watch stuff like that. So... Last thing I just want to tell you, and this is a really, really egotistical thing to say, but as I'm talking to you, I'm like looking behind you to see if my book is there and I found it. Yes, I found it. And I was like, oh, I'm so happy. And it's, I think it was like only four books down from like Rick Warren's book. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's right under an Oxford handbook. So. Oh, perfect, perfect. I got a 7-Eleven receipt in it from 2010. Wow. Well, it was published in 2010. So look at you. Oh, I even wrote in it. That's hilarious. So that you're you are the first and only person I've interviewed that has had a copy of my book. And the fact that I could find it squeezed into into your bookshelf, I'm I'm proud of myself as well. So be proud, man. Be proud. It's yeah, great. man. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. I really hope that my one listener will really benefit from kind of getting a better idea of, of the Gospels and how they can in, enrich their life. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit ConciergeMinister.com or send us an email at ConciergeMinister at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.